0: Oh, and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined as always by Nizar Hassan. Nizar, how's it going?
1: Great. How are you?
0: I, I'm doing good. And we have a very, uh, a, a little bit longer episode this week, uh, yeah. but I think it's one that uh, everybody's going to want to stick around for and listen to because we had a an absolutely fascinating chat with Alain Defani, the former Director General of Finance for a long time, right from 2000 till, to 2020. Uh, He just resigned in June and he's going to be joining us uh, really to explain how he sees things going both politically and economically, as well as to explain the finance ministry. Um, So stick around for that. But first off, we do want to just smash through the the week's news. Uh, We aren't going to be able to be as in depth we usually are, but there are a few things that we do want to talk about.
1: Yeah. So uh, just to be clear, we're recording this on Sunday. A few days after we recorded the interview with Alain Bifani, so he's going to be joining us after we go over the news. Right. So one of the things that happened this week that took a lot of attention was Nabih Berri, the Speaker of Parliament, announcing an agreement to organize negotiations between Lebanon and Israel over the maritime and the land borders. So Berri has been kind of responsible for this file for a real long time. Uh, He's been speaking about it repeatedly. And what we know is that Lebanon had been pushing for uh, demarcation to happen uh, as soon as possible so that we can use Block 9, which is one of the areas uh, where we will be extracting oil and I think gas specifically from our southern borders. So Barry has been uh, keeping an eye on that. And He's announcing a decision that he said, an agreement that he said was made on 9 July. So it's been a while, but the official document that he read was was signed on September 22nd. So it's quite recent, and the agreement seems to have been um, signed after Macron's visit and all the talks that came with it about sanctions potentially hitting Lebanese politicians in coordination or at least in, in, you know, with a green light from the United States. So A lot of attention has been given to this uh, announcement for many reasons. One of them is that uh, people are reasonably linking it to uh, the sanctions that have been imposed by the U.S., uh, on specifically on Ali Hassan Khalil, Berri's right hand, one of the major politicians in the Amal movement, and on Yusuf Finian recently. Basically, the the idea is that politicians in Lebanon are now more worried than uh, than ever about you know the relationship with the United States and keeping you know uh, being on good terms with the United States, which is why Lebanon has agreed to the U.S. and Israeli condition about these negotiations, which is that they happen under this like the mediation of the United States. While Lebanon had been preferring and pushing for a mediation by the United Nations. Uh, So Berri said, you know, he's been uh, handling this fight for a while, but now he's giving it all to the army. The army is going to be leading the negotiations and that both Lebanon and Israel requested U.S. mediation, which is, you know, part of the news that no one really believes uh, since this is not what Lebanon's position has been for a long time. But apart from the sanctions and this issue, there has also been a negative reaction to this announcement because it seems like Lebanon for the first time uh, is recognizing Israeli sovereignty over uh, land south of its borders. So it's not negotiating, you know, a separation border between Lebanon and occupied Palestine, but rather, you know, negotiating officially with Israel on what is Israeli waters, Israeli land, and what is Lebanese waters and land. So especially from the, from the popular base of Nabi Barri and Hezbollah, there's been some clear negative reactions. Uh, so we'll see whether, you know, this will amount to a pressure as to, you know, hinder these negotiations or uh, change some of them, some of its aspects. But for now, this was, you know, uh, this is what we know about it. We can analyze it more when we have more, you know, information
0: yeah and just to note here, like this is something that we're we're going to have to keep an eye on obviously, but it's not like there is suddenly some sort of breakthrough that means that some sort of deal is imminent, right I, I would actually be kind of surprised if if something came of this quickly, but but it is something that we do need to keep our eye on. and speaking of things that we need to keep our eyes on, there are a lot a lot of balls in the air right now, a lot of things going on in Lebanon, and most of them are not good. Today, the, the day we're recording, uh, Sunday is the two-month anniversary of the blast that uh, leveled parts of Beirut. To my eye, there still isn't a whole lot of state response to the disaster. Um, and we still, we still don't really know what happened, right? Uh, which is incredible. Two months later, we still don't know. It's almost like they don't want to tell us. <laughs> uh, also, we're keeping an eye on uh, coronavirus, which has spiked massively over the past few weeks. Uh, if you've been listening to the podcast, we have been over this time and time again. Just a very quick update. Uh, we saw another record week this week, more than 8,000 new cases, counting Saturday to Saturday. And on Saturday, that was an, uh, just uh, yesterday, it was another record, 1,321 new cases. We are now close to 24,000 active cases, probably today today those numbers it will, will reach and exceed 24,000 active cases. That's roughly one out of every 250 people in Lebanon that has tested positive right now. And and more than that may have it, uh, positivity rates are hovering around 10% right now, which is much higher than what it should be. And, and this suggests that our testing capacity has fallen behind. Mm-hmm. So we don't really know how many cases we have. We, we don't have the right testing capacity. And more concerningly right now, we don't seem to have the hospital capacity. Right now, our hospitals are around two-thirds full. We're talking about ICU and non-ICU, according to the CNRS's uh, dashboard. As of Friday, there were only 36 empty ICU beds in the country, according to Sarah Chang. And we also got Renewed concerns about hospital equipment this week. For us Aviad, who is the head of the Beirut governmental hospital, Rafi Hariri Hospital here in Beirut, the main governmental hospital, on Saturday said that uh, his hospital was informed by distributors that they will stop delivering medical supplies in, in abidance uh, of the decision of their syndicate. And, and of course, this is bound up with the economic crisis. It, it comes as importers and uh, cartels of importers worry about the end of BDL subsidies. The head of BDL, Riyad Salemi, said this week that we can continue supporting fuel, wheat, and medicine for another two to three months at the exchange rate of 1,500. That's according to an ABL statement. He also said, though, that the severe crisis is behind us, which makes no sense to me. I have no idea what he's talking about. And Salimé also said that BDL and the Banking Control Commission would take all the procedures legally available to reactivate the sector's contribution to financing the economy. And here is yet another statement. I, I feel like we're (laughs) <laughs> to make a uh, an American reference, we're back in the days of Donald Rumsfeld claiming that everything was going well in Iraq, right? Yeah. Uh, it, it's just all of this happy talk because BDL and the Banking Control Commission, up to this point, have shown absolutely zero will to actually regulate the banks.
1: This is one of the times where you feel again that Salemi is quite out of touch, uh, or maybe not out of touch is a wrong word because it's, uh, it it sounds like you know he's on another planet. No, he's just basically ignoring what the public already knows and what they don't know and what they're asking to know. And it's just saying these, st- making these statements that, you know, try to, you know, put makeup on things uh, without being honest and transparent as usual. So, you know, more of the same, more of this, there isn't, there, We maybe someone would expect with this crisis, a change in leadership in the central bank. We're not even having a change in behavior from the current leadership, right? Absolutely. And that's very, you know, bad.
0: Absolutely, yeah, and and we see this also just in the value of the lira, which is uh, as of today, Sunday, it's sort of in the mid eight thousands, um, and and amid all of these things, right, that, that is going on, we have now been as of Monday, fifty six days without a government. President Aoun has failed to call the parliamentary consultations to form to to designate a new prime minister, which these things are constitutionally binding. And he is just sitting on it right now, which really makes me question whether he understands the full impact of what is going on in the country right now. Uh, um, And this doesn't apply just to own, of course. This also applies to Parliament, which met this week, but failed to do anything about capital controls, despite data that suggests that someone may still be moving their dollars out, and a lot of them. Parliament did pass an enrichment law, um, but they failed to do anything about amnesty, which is a big problem because this this is, despite the coronavirus outbreak uh, in places like Rumier Prison, Rumier Prison, which is severely overcrowded, something like 10% of the population has coronavirus, something to that effect. Um, so essentially, from the state, we have seen no action to combat coronavirus and, and nothing really on the financial side either. It seems as though they're just staying the course and, and giving happy talk, unfortunately.
1: Yeah. And what the parliament did pass, um, apart from the illicit enrichment law, is another law that uh, has been demanded for a while. And BDL had recommended it and put it in one of its circulars. So now it's being made official, which is that people can send money to their family members who are students abroad. uh, But there are some conditions that make this quite an unfair policy, including the fact that you can't send money to new students. So if your child is Has been stuck since last year in some european country trying to um, not child where son or daughter trying to uh, do like um, a a ba degree or whatever they can't benefit from this because they had they have yet to start so only continuous students can benefit from it and also the maximum you can send is ten thousand dollars including the cost of tuition and the cost of all other costs living costs etc so you know anyone who has lived uh, in, in a study destination knows that $10,000 is really, literally nothing, you can't live on that. So yeah, they passed it, but they passed it in as usual in a distorted way, in a way that doesn't really benefit people. And speaking of the government formation, which um, we saw a tweet from uh, Pola Yaubian yesterday, the independent MP. Who, former MP, uh, former MP resigned. Yes, <laughs> um, who said that there seems to be an agreement to nominate a new prime minister designate this time, Hamad Basiri, whose name had been circulated in the early thawra days, but it wasn't the right environment for it because he's the sweetheart of the banks and Riyadh Salemi. He was literally the vice president, the vice governor uh, of the central bank, and he is in line with the policies. So, you know, more of uh, what we've been talking about for a while, which is the banks and BDL kind of winning uh, and influencing power more than they should. But we'll see whether this is a serious nomination, whether it will happen. Uh, We will see more about that this week. And now
0: joining us to have a discussion about the finance ministry and everything that we've been talking about is Alain Bethany, the uh, former director general of the finance ministry, longtime director general of the finance ministry, he resigned uh, at the end of June of this year in protest. Yes, indeed. Good afternoon. I hope you're fine. I, I, we are so excited to have you because uh, you, I think, probably better than almost anyone, know what is going on inside the bureaucracy and inside the halls of power. Um, I, I, I think that it's especially important also because the finance ministry is is not just any other ministry, right? Uh, it has extremely wide responsibilities uh, and its functions are absolutely essential to the functioning really of any kind of state. So thank you for joining us. And can you just sort of walk us through really quickly the basics of what is the finance ministry about? What are its basic functions so that we get a better idea of just what we're dealing with here?
2: Sure. Thank you very much for hosting me. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yes, it's been uh, a long time indeed uh, that I spent in this administration that has been uh, unfortunately falling apart slowly but surely. Uh, But at least at our level, at the General Directorate of the Ministry, we were able to achieve quite a lot of things, including reconstructing the financial accounts of Lebanon, including bringing Lebanon to the required level when it comes to tax transparency approved by the OECD and so on, many other issues. And all of this was unfortunately done against the political will and not under political supervision. This is the funny part of it, I mean the sad part of it. And it is also clear now that the whole administration of the Ministry of Finance is in a, you know, I don't want to be, to to, to sound like uh, they're totally desperate, but it happens that unfortunately, those who worked very hard for their country and for the citizens in Lebanon from within are very much disappointed nowadays. Now, coming to your question, your question is an extremely important one, and it is basically indicating why we have become a lawless state the reason why the ministry of finance has become so important is because we became a lawless state and i'll say a few things about that in a minute but first the ministry of finance as you know is a ministry that is split into three general directorates the general directorate of finance where i used to uh, be and then totally separate the General Directorate of Customs, and totally separate the General Directorate of Land Registry and Cadastre. In my General Directorate, we used to handle budget, taxation, including VAT, payment orders for the government, public accounting, public debt management, and treasury. And those functions within the General Directorate, and the other functions in the other General Directorates, all are under the supervision of the Minister of Finance, including also someone who reports directly to the Minister of Finance also, who is the commissaire of the government at the central bank. So in a nutshell, the Minister of Finance has a lot of things to care about and a lot of responsibilities. And of course, it provides some power. And it is not only because of this power that is provided by a law that everybody is so desperate to take the Ministry of Finance. It is because before everything else, ministers in Lebanon are able to go against the law without being questioned. And what what I'm trying to say here is the following. When you are a ministry that deals with practically everybody else, that is supposed to pay when every, every other line ministry is in need for money, if you decide not to pay illegally because there is a budget and you are supposed to pay But if you decide not to pay, if the minister doesn't want to pay, first, nobody comes after him or her. And second, this provides him or her with an enormous power over the other ministries. And we've seen that since the beginning of the 90s, when ministers of finance started to say, guess what? Yes, it is in the budget. The law has been passed. You have this amount of money to spend. But I decided that it was not the right time for that, and I'm not going to release the money. And this has become the unfortunate habit of ministers of finance. Not all of them, of course. We've seen a few of them who used to stick to the law perfectly well. But can you, can you name any of those names? Yes, I remember working with uh, Minister Korm, with Minister Saba, with Minister uh, Shattah who used to be very keen on, you know, sticking to... But anyway, reality is that everywhere in the Lebanese state, since the constitution, the new constitution, and since the explanation that was given to the accountability of ministers, everything started to fall apart. I'll take a minute on that. It was explained that ministers and presidents could only be prosecuted by a parliamentarian committee that should be formed to go after them. And of course, it's never formed. But reality is, obviously, that this is something that is usable when it's a treason uh, situation, when people are going against the high interests of the state. But it goes without saying that normally, under this constitution too, if someone is misusing public money he should be prosecuted by the the judiciary. But it happens that it became the the rule that the judiciary doesn't go after ministers and therefore they can do whatever they want. And this, in my personal opinion, is one of the most important reforms that we need to introduce if we really want to come back to some normality in the governance uh, uh, system. On top of that, of course, the system in Lebanon is extremely centralized despite the fact that the Constitution says we have to go toward decentralization, but these are words. Once again, what matters is what we do practically on the ground. It is a very centralized system, and therefore, everything goes through the desk of the Minister of Finance. And, of course, a Minister of Finance has the say in most of what matters in government issues. And therefore, of course, everyone, everyone wants to have this job, wants to have someone to protect the interests of the group because we are a country of clans nowadays, not anymore a country of uh, political parties uh, that are normally constituted. And therefore, there is a tremendous appetite for this. If we add to that the fact that the Minister of Finance signs most of the decrees because every single decree that has a financial impact is to be signed by the minister, And if we know that rights are given to the ministers not to sign until they want to, well, you can imagine the position of power that all of this is providing. And then, finally, there is the present fact, which is the situation of bankruptcy, whereby, of course, the Ministry of Finance becomes the most important ministry because it has to handle the situation and it has to come up with if you want the proper plans to be implemented by the whole government. And then there is this very tricky situation at the central bank. And as I told you, the commissaire of the government reports to the minister of finance. So he is the only minister who can ask for uh, explanations, for figures, for numbers, all of this not being very transparently provided, as you know, and uh, of course, you know, if we sum it up between reality today, between the way we handle the business since 1990 uh, something and between intrinsic powers given to the Ministry of Finance, of course, it's a very interest, uh, interesting deal for politicians.
1: So this kind of gives us an idea of why, uh, you know, the, mi- the ministry itself was kind of the same center of the whole collapse of uh, the cabinet formation process. Um, in the in the previous weeks and do you have any other like um, how do you understand the collapse of the cabinet formation do you think it's really about the ministry of finance or were there other things behind the scenes that we don't really see on the political surface
2: i think that from the position where we are today we can easily say that if it weren't about the ministry of finance it would have been about something else the fact is that the political system has collapsed that it has become extremely difficult for the clan to find common ground to form a former government. Very simply, this very sad system that was put in place at the beginning of the 90s mostly relied on the distribution of advantages and the use, the misuse of public funds to buy allegiance and to create alliances. Basically, these people who are Heads of clans who are not politicians, who are not in a democracy, are using the system and they used to find deals together to work together through the use of public funds. Instead of uh, using them for the goods of the population, it was used for the goods of the clans. And the reason why I used to clash all the time with most of the ministers I worked with is precisely on this point on the fact that this money is not yours, people. This is the money of the people, and it's supposed to be spent for the good of the people. So anyway, what I'm trying to say here is that all of the alliances and of the understandings that took place in the past were relying on how much public money was to be given to each and every one of them through public institutions through direct transfers through, through you name them uh, you know contracts etc and today when you are in a situation of bankruptcy it becomes very difficult to find the funds so what are you going to use to bring people around the table unfortunately in the past even when we used to have foreign intervention it was money given without a lot of conditionalities, and therefore it was possible to use this inflow of money to once again buy the, if you want, uh, the acceptance of those clans to be part of the system and the government. Now, it is a fact that there is not much to distribute anymore, and it is becoming more and more difficult to have them find common grounds, because they're not finding common grounds on policies. They're not finding them on the reforms needed. They are finding them on how to milk the system as much as possible. That is unfortunately reality.
0: So you, you describe this unfortunate reality as really having it start in the 90s, which for most of the 90s, the finance ministry was led by Rafi Hariri, either personally or through Ad Saniora, the Minister of State uh, is uh, minister of state for Financial Affairs. And then you joined actually in 2000, 20 years ago. Now, when you joined, Did you know what was going on? Were you aware of the situation? Or how did you become aware of it? Well, when I joined, it was Georges Gorm
2: who was minister. And the idea at that time was that the new government wanted to basically bring Lebanon back to a good governance. And of course, we had this dream at some point in time that all of a sudden, Uh, we would be much more respectful of public money and of of the state institutions. Reality is that it was a failure, that it didn't work, because of the same clans and groups that we saw today fighting the government plan when, when we came up with the rescue plan recently. And the way you learn about how the system works is, of course, through experience. You learn by, uh, you know, one fight after the other. You find things coming your way. And, of course, you realize that you can absolutely not accept something like that. So you start to have a clash with this person and a clash with the other person. And slowly but surely, you build your reputation and your boundaries that you don't accept to go beyond. But honestly... For the political level, it doesn't make a lot of difference because at the end, as I was trying to explain to you, ministers in Lebanon since the beginning of the 90s have become so powerful that they don't really care what happens at the level of the administration. At the end, okay, the director general says, no, I'm not uh, going along with this, and those are the reasons why, and I write them, and I send them officially to the minister. Well, if the minister still wants to do it, well, he can do it and nobody can stop him. So at the end, yes, you can be, you can try to be a voice of reason. You can try to be someone who wants to enforce legality. But at the end, when the minister takes the decision, what remains is that you write to the judiciary, you write to the control bodies. And if they don't do anything, well, fact is that uh, the minister uh, gets it his way.
1: So as you were saying, now we're at this very sensitive moment, a moment of bankruptcy for the state. First of all, I want to ask you about the macroeconomic situation we're in um, and uh, what you think are, is happening on the level of political economy between, you know, the banks, the central bank, the French initiative, the politicians, etc. But first of all, just in like in one minute, how would you describe the present macroeconomic situation? Because it might be different from the moment you resigned, right?
2: Oh, yes, of course it's different. It's moving very quickly nowadays. It is moving toward the worst, but it is moving toward an equilibrium too. For instance, imports have already half. Exports are more or less at the same level. So we are clearly in a system uh, where the economy is poorer, when people are poorer, and it shows. But this is also an equilibrium. And clearly, when uh, some of the people who were against uh, the government plan said, well, let's do nothing and uh, the system will find its equilibrium. This is exactly what they had in mind. But the whole difference between them and between us was that we didn't want to find an equilibrium whereby poverty would be at 70% and unemployment would be at 30%, which is going to be the case sometime soon. Of course, when you do nothing, you can find an equilibrium. At the end, Somalia was at an equilibrium when it reached rock bottom. But this is typically what we should try to avoid as people who are responsible and who care about our population, if we can still find a lot of people uh, who really care about the population. It is crystal clear that we have seen a tremendous correction in the economy. A lot of institutions will unfortunately not be able to survive that. We have an indecent number of uh, new unemployed and uh, poverty is uh, skyrocketing. To me, this is what matters. But of course, we can also add to that that the state receipts have fallen tremendously and that it's going to be a hell of a challenge to balance the budget now because, of course, there is no political courage to undertake the reforms that are necessary because it is practically impossible to think about streamlining uh, the expenditure now that the pound has fallen so much. And of course, there is a lot to do on the financial uh, level. On the economy, we are seeing the the beginning of the end of the fall, but it doesn't mean that there is nothing much to do because uh, we don't want to stabilize at this level. And on the financial level, there is a lot to be done because, of course, nothing has happened. There is no government to deal with that. The restructuring of the debt did not happen. And uh, we do not even agree on the minimum required to put a plan uh, in order. What we tried to achieve when we came up with a government plan that was welcomed by the international uh, community and by the IMF was precisely to avoid throwing all of the losses from the system on the population. And the fact is that during the past years, and it accelerated a lot in the past three years the enormous amount of losses that were accumulating in the balance sheet of the central bank and therefore in the balance sheet of the banking sector was becoming uh, simply too big for the system to swallow. And we wanted to have the biggest uh, contribution from those who could afford it and those who created it because it's about solidarity and it's about fairness. And those people who created it, well, who are they? You have the corrupt politicians, you have those who benefited from financial engineering like crazy in the billions, in the tens of billions, and you have those who benefited from the system because of their situation, i.e. bank shareholders, whom were able to earn a lot of money uh, during the past three decades. And what was required was not much. It was, of course, about having a forensic audit to bring back some of the money that was taken illegally. It was about clawing back part of the financial engineering that was given without any good reason. I mean, I don't see why someone should be the beneficiary of the financial engineering and not the neighbor. And third, uh, it was required from the bank shareholders to bring back a small part of the accumulated profits to recapitalize their institutions and allow their depositors to use their money again. And of course, those who didn't want to hear about that, i.e. part of the politicians, as I mentioned, those who benefited from the engineering, those who didn't want to admit that financial engineering was a very bad thing for the system, and the shareholders of the bank, well, joined forces to sabotage the process. The problem is that they did not come up with an alternative. The alternative they came up with was to say, well, basically, if we take uh, whatever remains from public assets, and if we freeze the deposits for like uh, tens of years, it will be fine. I mean, we will, uh, we will uh, cope with the losses. But here, of course, there are two points. First, by freezing the deposits, you are basically imposing an enormous haircut on depositors. And by taking public assets, you are stealing assets that are not yours. Those are the assets of the people. Those are the assets of the taxpayers. When you take them from the state, it's the taxpayer that is owned to compensate with his taxes. And this is criminal. More than that, even if you do it, it will not sort out the issue because by taking public assets from Lebanon and giving them inside Lebanon to another Lebanese party, you are not bringing any dollar into the system. And therefore you are not allowing depositors to have access again to their deposits. So basically those losses will not be absorbed by the three categories that are referred to. But what they want to have is to have the depositors absorb the loss. We wanted shareholders to pay, which is legal, which is fine, which is normal. When you earn money, when you, when you have profits, you take, you take your profit. But when you lose, you have to contribute. And they want depositors to pay. And basically, they are imposing haircuts right, left, and center on whomever needs to have access to part of his money. And they are having all of the citizens of Lebanon pay by the depreciation of the pound. Because the real alternative to the plan was to have a correction through the depreciation of the pound. And we've seen what is happening. And we all know that it is... Unfortunately, not likely to stop where it is now, very simply because when a central bank is telling you, well, I'm not going to be able to continue to subsidize the most important goods. Well, this means that uh, reserves are not really, uh, you know, available. Plus, depositors and who among the depositors? In the government plan, we were saying that the biggest ones, those who are above the uh, the $10 million accounts should contribute through a bail-in. We don't take their money. We give them shares uh, uh, against about 15% of the deposit they have. This is not huge. Nowadays, people are losing 60 to 70% already. And in reality, those who didn't want that to happen, wanted the small depositors to pay the price. Because effectively, those who go to the banks today, and are in need to withdraw the dollars or the Lebanese pounds at a very uh, detrimental uh, uh, rate are the poor and the middle class. So basically, the whole issue is not about figures like they tried to show. It's not about you know somebody who wants to demolish the banking system or not. As a matter of fact, those who became the worst enemies of the banks are the bank's shareholders. And in reality, the two conflicting uh, views were, first, one that wanted those who benefited from the system to pay, and the second who wanted, as usual, the usual citizen, the average citizen, and the average depositors to pay.
0: And and they're winning though, right? Right now we are seeing this process of sort of lyrification in slow motion through circular 151 and whatever may come after that. Do you believe that uh, this is going to continue and should it continue or what What should be done? If you were in power today and had the ability to make policy, would you continue uh, with something like 151 or would you take a radically different approach? First, let's
2: uh, agree on one thing. It is not only continuing. It is being orchestrated. It is not just about we don't want to do anything we are not able to do anything not doing anything is the policy it is precisely the policy and here we are moving to the policy that from the beginning some very influential players wanted to have don't do anything the biggest player will, will the biggest players will get away with that at the end it's about playing time and whatever remains with the banks, when we are finally able to bring them back to life, will be the biggest deposits. And uh, whomever is going to pay the price are, as usual, the, uh, the poor people. So that's something that is a policy in itself. Number two, is it going to continue? Well, I'm not seeing anything that can stop it. There is no government. The government that wanted to do something about that finally didn't have the guts to do it. And there has to be some, you know, alternative to what is going on to be uh, imposed by uh, a government that is able and that would have the support of whomever matters. If the government doesn't have the, the exceptional powers, then it has to have the support of parliament. If it has the exceptional powers, someone has to help it get the exceptional powers. So in any case, with the situation in which we are now, the country is you know, taken hostage by groups of interest who are able to sabotage any comprehensive plan. And the plan we came up with uh, a few months ago was precisely comprehensive. And this is what was bothering them. What was bothering them was that we were touching the essence of the system and that we were talking about unveiling what they didn't want to unveil. And we were talking about forensic audit, everything else they didn't care about. So uh, there has to be some kind of influential player who can force this into the system. When we were negotiating with the IMF, the IMF told the central bank at some point in time we don't understand. I mean, do you really want to do that to your society? I mean, do you know how harsh it's going to be socially? The point I'm trying to make here is that, are they winning? You asked me if they were winning. We know that everybody else is losing, but even these people are not willing. What are we talking about? I mean, if you can keep your money and if you can keep zombie institutions, but you're not able to live decently in your country because you're not safe, because you don't have the services, because the public authorities are inefficient, inefficient, because utilities are not working, because the trash is piling in the streets. Is this the kind of country that these people want? Of course, at the end, some of them are saying it. Well, we'll take our money and we'll live abroad. Well, if they really want to do that, The ideal would be that they leave immediately. Because, in any case, if this is what they want, let them at least give this population a chance to put things back in order, to stop denying reality, and to try to act on the substance. What should we do? What we should do is extremely easy to imagine. First, we all know what the size of losses are. And for all those funny people who are trying to challenge our figures. I will not waste a lot of time in uh, talking about the details, but I think that by now everybody knows that the figures are perfectly correct. And the IMF has made it clear at many occasions. Uh, But reality is not about the size of the losses. Reality is that we need to allocate the losses properly. And without solidarity, without having those who benefited most, contribute most, it's not going to work. By the way, the managing director of the IMF said that a few weeks ago. She said it is critical that those who benefited most from the system contribute. This is good sense. I mean, it's not that we spoke together or anything. So we have to reallocate losses properly. For that, we need to have a new tax system or a different tax system. We need to have the courage of introducing the long-awaited reforms on the fiscal We need to completely restructure the central bank and the banking sector, bring the central bank back to its core business, bring the banking sector to a normal size. It is funny, but bankers are saying, wow, you want to shrink our institutions. No, your institutions have shrunk. We want them to be able to grow again. And it's not because we want uh, to be nice to bankers. It's because we care about depositors and we care about the economy and how to finance the economy. And obviously, talking about the real economy, uh, the good policies today would be to finally come back to production. And for all those who say that Lebanon was never a productive country, I would refer them to the 60s and the 70s because they obviously have no idea. And not only production, but it's about exports. Nowadays, the key word in, Leban- in Lebanese business has to be exports it's going to be very difficult to bring back the dollars quickly because of the situation of the banking sector and how uh, unhelpful those who are in charge are being but this has to be the key word production productivity
1: exports you mentioned the tax system the need for a new tax system there's a lot of talk uh, in many countries now about the need for a wealth tax. And in Lebanon, we have, we all know that there's an extreme concentration of wealth. And it seems to happen, uh, surprisingly, kind of in parallel with the concentration of political power and uh, in, in politicians, political parties, religious institutions, etc. And what do you think? I want to pick uh, your brains on that specifically. What do you think of a one-time or regular, but let's say one-time wealth tax in Lebanon? That taxes people who own huge assets, hundreds, tens of billions of dollars, lots of land, so they can be, be all sorts of institutions or, or individuals.
2: Well, a wealth tax is, I mean, it's not necessarily a wealth tax, but all tax systems rely usually on three pillars, on revenue, on wealth, and on consumption. We have an inflated one on consumption, we have a reasonable one on revenue, and we have nothing on wealth. And the question is, why? Well, because since we started to see this uh, phenomenal octopus made of many politicians and, uh, you know, uh, people in the banking sphere and those who, who helped them uh, build those fortunes, we have seen an enormous concentration of wealth in the country. It is just unbelievable how much wealth was concentrated in the hands of a few hundreds. And of course, when this situation continues for a long time, these people become the political elite also. They start by being uh, in the political sphere, and slowly but surely, they take over. And nowadays, we are in this situation where power and money are concentrated in the hands of the same people. And basically, it becomes extremely difficult to pass that kind of laws, because they are in charge. I mean, they're not going to tax themselves. We've tried many times in the past to introduce changes in the tax system that would make it fairer. The only thing that worked practically is the tax on the interest income and lately the tax on the capital gains. But both of them are below, below what, what one would have expected in a country like Lebanon. But anyway, using a wealth tax today makes a lot of sense. Of course, it can be one way of mobilizing the resources that we're talking about, and that, um, for instance, the bankers would call a haircut. And we heard, by the way, bankers say recently in Paris when they visited, well, if the haircut is uh, under under the cover of a wealth tax, it's fine with us. I mean, let's face it. What we need today is not to take money from those who cannot afford it anymore. If we do that, not only it is unfair, but we're going to kill consumption and we're going to kill production. Therefore, in the country nowadays, it is critical that any mobilization of resources come from those who have the means. And of course, a wealth tax, many wealth taxes, a one-shot wealth tax, or anything like that, is of course in the in the tools in the toolbox of whichever minister of finance who's going to draw the new policies.
0: Right now, the big question in a lot of people's minds is whether the subsidies from BDL will run out. Uh, this has been telegraphed, it seems as though, uh, and, and there are a lot of rumors uh, flying around about this. Uh, and if you look at the math, it is obvious it's, it will happen at some point if no other factors change. Do, is there some way out of this? Or are we going over another cliff here? Well, to have an accurate uh, assessment of that, we first have to know exactly what
2: the figures are. And this is still unavailable, which is quite amazing. I mean, you, you, we, we do have figures that are published, but I mean, can we really rely on that? We don't know. Clearly, the governor had the courage to say, well, I'm going to have to stop sub- subsidies sometime soon. In my personal view, it's uh, a good thing that he did it this way instead of surprising everybody at the last minute by saying, okay, it's done, we're going to stop. Nevertheless, the real questions are not here. The real questions are, first, what are we subsidizing and for whom? You know, the subsidies in Lebanon have long benefited a lot of people who don't really need to be subsidized. And had we been able and, I mean, were we able today to decide that we really want to focus on those who are in need, then we would have a way uh, longer capacity to continue subsidizing whatever needs to be subsidized. That's one. So who are the beneficiaries? Uh, Are they really eligible for subsidies if the system is fair? Number two, what are we trying to achieve by those subsidies? There are different ways of achieving the goals. And then, This policy of buying time that we saw the central bank pursue forever, some would argue that, well, they were waiting for the politicians to do something and others would say it was uh, suicidal. It doesn't matter. What matters is that today we have to ask ourselves, what are we expecting exactly tomorrow? So we can either be able to continue to subsidize whatever needs to be subsidized or to continue to allow those who are the most fragile in the system to survive. This is what matters. And for now, we're not seeing any kind of policy uh, with regards to that. So coming back to your question, what do the math say? If we accept that the figures are correct, it can still go on for a short period of time, but maybe the figures are lower, and maybe they're not. We don't know. And what's going to happen when this stops?
0: Well, reality... Can, can you give in- a, a uh, better uh, time frame for that? What does short mean? Short means a few months. And if I'm not mistaken, okay.
2: the governor himself said until the end of the year. That was a, I mean, an idea of the timeline. But again, we are seeing uh, big changes in the balance sheet of the central bank. And uh, it's not very clear why this is happening. So uh, will it happen before? I honestly don't know because we have no visibility on the figures. It is impossible to go on uh, with a very difficult situation and without the transparency that is required.
1: Mm. So what would be the impact of, of of the subsidies if they are lifted off quite, not suddenly, but we expect it to be lifted quite gradually, right? You know, uh, subsidizing the items and the imports more partially and then lifting it off gradually when there is no more uh, reserves to use so what do you think the impact will be i mean um, uh, what the obvious impact is that we will have um, a hike in prices on things that are basic necessities right on um, combustibles on medicines on uh, bread potentially etc so anything any other impacts we can think of
2: Well, you basically mentioned them uh, uh, very rightly. I mean, this is what we're talking about. Subsidies are about precisely petrol, medication, and uh, medical uh, equipment, and also um, wheat. When I started uh, uh, this discussion, I mentioned that we were going toward the 70% poverty. Uh, This is after stopping subsidies. Uh, That would be the main impact. As you said... We're going to see prices soar on those very important segments. And we're going to see poverty surge once again. Of course, again, we will reach an equilibrium. But at what level? We are changing the face of our country. We are making it a country for a few hundred extremely rich people and an immense majority of very poor people. And it makes me, well, smile, but also very sad When I hear those same people say we have to be uh, very cautious not to change the face of the country. What are we talking about? This is exactly what is happening. Uh And uh, if we we consider petrol, for instance, yes, it has an impact on the citizen every day, but it also has an impact on the industry. And this is important to keep in mind. The health uh, sector is going to become even less accessible to the majority of the citizens. Bread, I assume that the government will do its utmost to continue to subsidize, but again, until when? And when we imagine that we cannot subsidize, I mean, even bread, this means that we are really running uh, out of any dollar. And this is a catastrophic situation. The funny thing is that, I mean, again, not funny, the tragic thing is that, nobody seems to realize how catastrophic the situation could become. And the moment to act is now. It's not tomorrow. It's not when it happens. It is now.
1: Acting requires, you know, political will, uh, political courage, you called it, but also requires sometimes, you know, political change, right? Because if your interests are not really aligned. let's
2: Let's define what acting means, if I may. Acting means that we have to come up with a solution, a plan that takes the country out of its crisis as quickly as possible and secure uh, the inflow of dollars as quickly as possible. This will not happen if we don't reform the banking sector. This will not happen if we don't have structural reforms, deep fiscal reforms. If all of this doesn't happen, nobody is going to be sending dollars into Lebanon. I mean, the Lebanese who are in charge, the politicians, the bankers do not even want to repatriate a small part of their money. How can we imagine that the rest of the world would? We really need to have a rescue plan that makes sense as quickly as possible to have it approved by the by the international community and to start acting quickly on reestablishing the financing lines for the Lebanese economy.
1: Great. So what I what I was asking is, these actions require political change, it seems, because, uh, you know, with the same leadership in the central bank, with the same leadership in government, with the bankers having so much influence and sometimes themselves being the politicians that are making decisions, do you see any way we can do that without, lead, for example, uh, a change in leadership in the central bank as one requirement? and a government that is completely independent from the bankers in in its economic decision making and also independent from the political representation of the bankers which is the majority of parliamentarians right you have you have you've met a lot of mps i bet and you know that the the links between mps and the bankers in lebanon are too intimate to, to describe comfort, comfortably. So uh, do you think as well, do you agree that without political change at all of these levels, it's almost impossible to get out of this crisis?
2: Look, without going into the specifics of uh, who has to go first and uh, if we need to have a change uh, in the leadership of this ministry or this institution, what is clear is that, and I called it the octopus, is that there is a very strong core um, group that has taken over this country with practically all the financial means. Uh, And you said it yourself, they are obviously in politics at parliament and they are obviously in the financial system. And of course, they are at the central bank and so on. All of this has to change. All of this has to go. If we still believe that it is possible to have the same kind of governance, we are wrong. The world will not accompany Lebanon with the same kind of governance. If we still believe that despite all of this, we can fix our issues ourselves, we don't have the means anymore, the money is gone, it is finished. These people do not want to inject money, and in any case, they don't do it right. So whether we are talking about trying to do it on our own or trying to do it with the support of the rest of the world, with this clique in uh, in charge, it is impossible to do it. The simple fact that whenever you need to mobilize funds, they have the funds and they don't want to participate. Whenever you need to introduce reforms, any reform goes against the interest of most of them. How do you want to, you know, create a system that works in a situation like that? It is practically impossible. It was very um, informative to see uh, the international world talk to uh, the Lebanese system at various occasions, talking about the reforms that need to be introduced and wondering why those reforms were not. Well, it goes without saying because any reform any structural reform in Lebanon would have an immediate impact on one or many of the clans and therefore it will break the equilibrium the balance of powers internally would be broken and this is not acceptable to this uh, to this system this can take us to another civil war this can take us to chaos so if they don't wake up one day and all of them become extremely virtuous And, uh, you know, dreamers, the only plausible way is to put
0: them all on the side. So you've spoken quite generally about these uh, few hundred people uh, who have a lot of power and a lot of money in the country. But I imagine that you possess the knowledge to help uh, perhaps sideline a lot of these people. You were at the Ministry of Finance for 20 years. You know where all the bodies are buried, I imagine. Will you share all of the things about corruption that you've learned so that uh, people can learn exactly what these different Zouamad, what these different bankers have done and uh, how they have used the system to enrich themselves at the expense of the Lebanese people? Will you reveal that information?
2: I'm going to tell you um, something that... I really wanted to say a long time ago. First, to, I mean, to make things clear, there is banking secrecy in Lebanon. And therefore, if we're talking about bank information, I don't have them. You know, we know exactly who has them and we have to uh, ask the question to those who have the information. I don't. When it comes to everything else, everything else that I saw, I cannot believe that I'm still being asked if I'm willing to talk about that. I've spoken at least 10 times at Parliament during long meetings. I gave a statement of about three hours in 2010 in front of tens of MPs. I went on giving a press conference two and a half years ago, which is something that is totally forbidden for a civil servant if
0: he's not authorized by his minister, and I wasn't. Absolutely. And it angered uh, one of the former ministers greatly, yes. And I did that because
2: I wanted to talk about everything that was going on, that I wanted to expose the way uh, public finance were being held, that I wanted to make clear that I have sent tens of files to the control bodies and to the judiciary. So a short answer to the question is, It's not that I'm willing, it's that I did it and I'm still waiting for those who are supposed to follow up, to follow up. And not only did I do it, I'm still waiting for every Lebanese citizen who heard what I said to act on that. I'm not asking the citizens, obviously. I'm talking about the system. I'm talking about the judiciary. I'm talking about the MPs. I'm talking about everybody who should be in a position of control. Parliament is supposed to control the system. You know, you have two kinds of controls. You have the popular control through Parliament, and you have the judiciary uh, control. If both of them are paralyzed, well, you can talk until uh, next century. Nothing's going to happen. So once again, if people are interested, they can go back to the media for the past 20 years. I can assure you that I said, A lot of things that are of interest but it happens that the funny thing is again that I'm being asked to reproduce all of this
0: all the time but nothing is happening absolutely yeah I'm I'm curious though your role now what what do you see your role as uh, now now that you are no longer at the finance ministry and and in the future or will you Uh, be taking on a more public role uh, at some point? I'm not, uh, you know, I didn't leave the ministry to take
2: a public role. Uh, I mean, a public, uh, you know, a a job in the administration again. And uh, I believe that it is very important to have a step backward and to see things differently for some time. I'm definitely not interested in any job in the Lebanese system nowadays unless the whole system changes, because I know that a lot of people in Lebanon are totally focused and dreaming about becoming ministers and becoming MPs and becoming governors and so on. Well, I'm not very much in this mood. And uh, I don't think that the purpose is to get a title. The purpose is to be able to do what you have to do. This is why I decided to quit. When I realized that the thing was becoming far too big, and that the government was not supporting anymore uh, the action that I wanted to fulfil, and it is definitely not, you know, what I'm looking for to become minister in one of those governments who will achieve nothing but, uh, you know, another waste of time. Definitely not willing to be governor of any central bank that is not uh, able to reform itself and uh, within a system that is able to provide something better for the Lebanese uh, population. Uh, But doing good for Lebanon doesn't mean that you are in the public service. I mean, you can do a lot of things for your country from uh, outside the system. And I'm, as a matter of fact, working on a few initiatives uh, for this goal precisely nowadays.
1: Will we see you in a political movement uh, maybe someday soon? Maybe someday I'm not, uh, you know, it
2: would be uh, wrong to dismiss this option uh, from now because at the end, politics is not about being in a position of power and uh, using it for one's own good. It's about serving one's country. And uh, maybe one day I'm not uh, at all... uh, any anywhere close to uh, being becoming part of a, of a group. You may know that I was never part of uh, any group, and I've always declined becoming part of uh, specific parties because I thought that the administration had to remain at the service of all. When the administration becomes a tool, I mean, a leverage for one party against the others, this is when it becomes a bad administration. Despite everything that we saw at the ministerial level, I can say honestly that I was proud of what we achieved at the General Directorate of Finance with sometimes excellent civil servants. I'm not saying that they were uh, all good, but we have people who work day and night for their country and for, their, uh, for the population, and this is what i'm proud of everything else we'll see what uh, what the future uh, will bring but again the purpose is not to be part of the system at all and uh, if i had accepted very early in the process to be part of this system everybody today would say that i'm the nicest person ever and uh, you know uh, a wonderful guy <laughs> this is not what i'm looking for you know
1: and you would be probably one of the people that you're criticizing today. <laughs> I mean, fortunately, you didn't go down that path. Uh, Alain Vifani, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. Thank it's been you really so much. a pleasure. And uh, hopefully, we'll have a, another discussion in the future when things are uh, are hopefully different to the better.
0: Yeah, yeah, hopefully, it won't be quite as dire. This entire episode, I I've know. just been sitting here listening to you and thinking, oh my God. Yes. <laughs> like, but no, we know that is. right we've been talking about <laughs> it for, we have, yeah.
1: for months that uh, you know, people who are leading us are shooting themselves and us in the in the foot and in the head and it's a, it's, it's a very bad situation that we're in but I mean you know hopefully we can have through these conversations at least some kind of progressive consensus for the future uh, among the people who are interested in these topics and, and following the podcast thank you so much again for yeah, coming working, yeah, working on
2: this consensus is going to be of great great importance absolutely And uh, well, I'm sorry if I was uh, very uh, gloomy, but it happens that every single person I'm talking to in Lebanon nowadays uh, is in the same uh, mindset. Let's hope that uh, we will be able to bounce back as quickly as possible. And, uh, and, you know, it's not about hope. It's about what we do. Let's hope that we're going to do the right things.
1: Hope so. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Until then, my name is Nizar Hassan.
0: I'm Benjamin Rad. I'm Alain Bifani.
1: And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson and the music is by Omar Elfeel.